welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Viv Groskop, writer, stand-up comedian, TV and radio presenter, executive coach and one-woman powerhouse. She's the host of the chart-topping podcast How to Own the Room, which is also a best-selling book, and has published two literary self-help books, The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature, and Au revoir Tristesse, Lessons in Happiness from French Literature. Her brilliant, most recent book, Lift As You Climb, Women, Ambition and How to Change the Story, is out in paperback on 4th of March. She talked to me about money, power, and finding fun at work. So I'm thrilled to bits to have you on the podcast, Viv. Welcome to Work Interrupted. Thank you, Christina. I'm thrilled to speak to you. I have an activity to <laughs> Well, my first question is, how is lockdown three going for you? Oh, I've give, definitely given up counting the number of lockdowns. It just feels all like one long one long slog it doesn't really matter to me very much the relaxation of the rules I I feel like it's a big challenge for me when we're not in the before time full stop Mm. so um Mm. how is it for me it's really I mean obviously I've got nothing to complain about everybody has to say that don't they Mm. um you know I've had friends and family who have been ill um I've been lucky enough not to have any bereavements uh, yet touch wood um, and I've got three children at home um, who are happily homeschooling and, and they're managing pretty well actually in this uh, new digital world m- much easier than the the first lockdown and my husband who's a radio producer is also working from home so in southwest London so you know pretty good really but deep down uh, this has been a sort of massive challenge to my identity I would say Mm. as a writer as a freelancer as a broadcaster as a performer because many of the things that defined me uh, have been forcibly removed and you know this is a tiny challenge on the on the global scale of disaster that we're facing that's going to stretch long into the future no matter how quickly we come out of the immediate effects but on a personal level I you know I really feel for so many people who must be going through the same thing as me which is kind of fundamental rethinking of who you are why you do what you do what you put your time into um and that's it's kind of exciting sometimes and I enjoy rethinking things and doing new stuff so sometimes I get energized but a lot of the time I do get very stuck on on what has been lost Mm, mm, it's it's so interesting I mean as you know, I, I lost my job on a, a national paper some years ago and wrote a book about it. And for me, that shattering of my core identity was worse than almost anything else I'd been through. And I had been through an awful lot. So for me, I have to say that relatively speaking, the pandemic has been a picnic because I kind of did that grieving before. But I do think that quite apart from the physical and uh, emotional challenges and kind of if we're talking Maslow's hierarchy of needs as you say we are um, 
you know, the lucky ones because we're safe and well and at home and are not having to go out and risk our lives. But I do think that many, many people are grappling with that sort of fundamental shift to their identity. And I assume that's one of the reasons you started your podcast, We Can Rebuild Her. Yes. Um, Well, I was going to say anybody who has the time to make a podcast or even really listen to a podcast uh, are are obviously in the fortunate fortunate category. Um, But yeah, that was something that arose from the beginning of all this for me is that, yeah, similar to that moment that you describe where you lose a job or you become redundant, you know, where something happens to you that you didn't really have very much choice uh, about. And that has happened to me uh, in my working life before. It's that kind of moment of having the rug pulled out from under you. Um, I felt that very strongly uh, around sort of March, April, May of of last year when my calendar just emptied, Mm. you know, very busy calendar just just went white. Uh, And I always remember in that Jane Rivers documentary, uh, which a brilliant documentary about her life that, was uh, made shortly before she died she says what fuels her is the horror of the blank page and Mm. she was somebody who couldn't face being unoccupied or having any free time or having time to think and a lot of people who are extrovert and enjoy being busy and enjoy being part of things uh, that horror of the blank page was massive for them in the beginning Mm. of last year Mm. so this idea for the podcast we can rebuild her grew out of that I wanted to have conversations with people who had explored um, in the way that you have in your writing loss grief reinvention resilience from a, a physical point of view from a psychological point of view from an emotional point of view people who have examined what it is to bounce back in lots of different situations. So I talked to Martha Lane Fox, the tech entrepreneur, about the two big crashes that she's endured, you know, the first um, big dot-com bubble crash that sort of wiped out her um, her livelihood. And then uh, about 10 years after that, she was literally in a horrific uh, car crash, which she mm-hmm. only just survived. So she knows a lot about bouncing back, and that was a really fascinating conversation right through to people like Catherine May, who wrote Wintering, which is a wonderful book about the influence of the seasons on our lives. So that was a bit of a lifeline for me, actually, Mm. during that early lockdown, was being able to have those very intimate conversations and feel that that was a useful contribution. I think that's what we're really getting at when you talk about this identity thing, is it's so important for all of us as human beings to feel that we have a useful contribution and we have a reason for being here. Purpose yes. and meaning are so important. You know, they're what make yes. us human. And, yes. and uh, for good or bad, we really do attribute those things to work. And yes. I think that's one thing that has really come under the microscope during this time is, you know, do we put too much of our worth, uh, do we assign too much meaning to work Uh, as a measure of our personal worth Mm. and of course you know in political terms and economic terms really that's all about money as Mm. well you know does it really matter if you're earning money and of course if you don't have any then it matters a lot Um, but is that really the only measure of who you are as a person and the people who are contributing the most in our society at the moment you know key workers frontline workers people are keeping keeping the wheels turning uh, they have have been in the past amongst some of the people we value the least 
so the podcast was a great opportunity to talk about all of those things and and it achieved the principal goal of it which was to cheer me up Mm, well it's a superb podcast and actually one of the things that shocked me in the Martha Lane Fox conversation was the fact that she still has so much physical pain today I I, I had a lot of physical pain in my 20s and in in sort of chunks of my 30s and thank goodness I don't have it now but it's exhausting physical pain so my admiration for her was uh, you know even even higher at the end of that. I, I'm very interested in what you say about money, and you're absolutely right that the people who have paid the highest price have paid it in so many ways because care workers, and in fact, there's a, a piece in today's Guardian I just saw which said that uh, I think the lowest earning men have died at three times the rate of anyone else, which is absolutely shocking. But you know, you and I are not in that key worker category. In fact, you know have discovered that we are not key at all in all kinds of ways <laughs> but um, and in fact I do think that has been a sort of genuine crisis of conscience not a very uh, not an immobilizing one but a real sense for all of us who are not key workers or medics or healthcare workers or whatever literally feeling on top of everything else feeling pretty useless at this time but I wanted to ask you about the money thing because You've worked in the corporate world in increasingly in recent years, and I, I want to talk more about that later, but also in journalism, which used to be quite high earning and has become much less high earning. And I certainly um, have most of my life, you know, earned a kind of steady-ish, maybe like a teacher's salary, and then had a few years of earning a fair bit more, and then years of earning less. And I, I'm not someone who's very motivated by money, but I have found it interesting that even I, who am not very motivated by money, have found myself feeling not great about myself at times when I've earned very little. Do you have that at all, or are you uh, able to rise above that? Oh, Christina, massive question. <laughs> massive <laughs> conversation. I'm very fascinated by this question of how money affects our self-esteem and in some ways it's it's a sort of facile conversation because of course if you don't have any money then life is really really difficult and you're mm. concentrated on on the basics and on not falling between the cracks and that has been the very sobering thing about this uh, the pandemic is that as you describe with that statistic and there are loads of other statistics involving all kinds of population groups who are disproportionately represented in the in the death statistics and in the hospital admissions and the pandemic has shown that you know any underlying trend in society uh, regarding poverty or lack of opportunity is amplified you know the pandemic shines a light on it what we choose to do with that information afterwards is is going to be interesting I just I suspect we shall ignore it and mm, continue exactly. in our disastrous way exactly. but I would love to be proven wrong mm. um but for me personally yeah I've had a sort of similar trajectory with money to you in that I've had lots of, of ups and downs I've been freelance for 20 years I went freelance when I was four, uh, 27 and I'm 47 now um, I took a redundancy from a newspaper job um, thinking that I would be freelance for six months and then go back into a job and then never did and realized that I absolutely hate uh, working for other people I love working for myself and independence is really important to me mm. 
Um, I always thought, oh, I don't really, you know, money's not that important to me. Money's not much of a motivator until you realise those ups and downs. And when you when you don't have a steady income and in freelancing, there's never any guarantee of, of you know, where you're going to be in six months time or a year's time. And I think actually increasingly in regular jobs, <laughs> that's also mm. the case. You know, mm. a regular job is no longer um insuring you from some of um, the vagaries of freelancing um, you come to realize how important it is to have stability to have growth uh, how you can you can become motivated by the possibility of getting a certain reward for your work and I've done a lot of work on myself and a lot of reading and a lot of exploring around the subject of what a lot of these uh, newfangled coaches called money blocks you know we have a lot of emotional and psychological blocks around money that are related to our childhood to uh, societal pressures to cultural norms uh, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that um, uh, if you're poor it's just because you've got money blocks <laughs> because there would be lots of structural reasons as well but if you put money block emotional psychological money blocks on top of all of the structural stuff then you really are in a bind. Mm. So when I discovered about this idea of money blocks, and it's really things like um, being afraid of the rejection of a no or um, accepting, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'll take that fee because that's probably all I'm worth. Uh, that's that's the kind of psychological work around money blocks. Um, and, it, and if you talk to, you know, I don't want to make this, in 100% gendered conversation because there's lots of stuff around class and all sorts of stuff in this but if you talk to women about this they'll know exactly what you're talking about you know women have often grown up um, being told they're only worth a certain amount uh, it's greedy to ask for more don't let people think that you're grasping don't let people think you're a bitch all of those things and once I became more aware of that it so freed me up to think okay well what do I want what am I comfortable asking for? What are the trade-offs here? Um, and I always think about, you know, there's this uh, expression, um, forgive forgive the crudeness of it, Christina, but, you know, what flavour of shit sandwich do you want to eat? <laughs> because all work has a shit sandwich yeah. that comes with it. Yeah. And sometimes it might be very low salary. But if though you absolutely love the job and it's your life's work and you can either live on a fairly low amount of money or you have um, a partner who can support you with a better earning job then okay then that flavor is okay for you um, for other people it may be that you earn a lot of money but you're really really beholden to other people and you have to do what they say yes well exactly. that's a flavor that I cannot stomach yeah, me too. So <laughs> I think knowing those things about yourself is really, really important. Yeah. But of course, the relevance of that in a pandemic is really interesting because I'm not sure that those old rules apply so much anymore and everything's up in the air in a good mm. way and a bad way. Mm. And where you might have been able to see in the past, okay, if I set myself up for this goal, these are going to be the pros and the cons, this is the likely income this is the likely cost <laughs> it's much more difficult to see those things now yes yes I, I completely agree it's interesting when the only whacking rate pay rise I got in my life was in my last years at the independent when I had the key 
column on a Wednesday and a full page on a Saturday and suddenly realised I was being paid tens of thousands less than all the other columnists. And so I asked Deborah Orr, the late, lovely uh, Deborah Orr, what she had earned when she was in that slot. And she very kindly told me. So when I went to the editor and asked for a pay rise and was offered much, much less, I said, no, that's not good enough. And I did eventually get what I wanted. And then unfortunately, the editor was fired and then I was fired. So it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, you cleared your money block. <laughs> yes, I did. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you had, you were at one point described as one of the most successful freelance journalists in the country. And I remember certainly before the whole stand up thing and then corporate coaching thing that you were everywhere. You, your level of energy, you were in sort of practically every publication, obviously slight exaggeration. You were popping up on radio and TV all the time. You have clearly always been a high achiever and very high energy. How far was that to do with fear of the blank page? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Somebody did once say to me uh, during that time, and this was probably thinking probably between, yeah, maybe me being about 28 and 38, because when I was sort of 36, 37, I started doing stand up. Mm. Um, and that was really coincided with um, the financial crash of 2008, 2009 and the huge realignment um, of the media landscape and, mm. and print media. Um, but I remember somebody saying to me around that time when I was doing a lot of freelancing for, for newspapers, you know, a lot for The Guardian and The Observer. And I pretty much wrote for everybody. I had a column in The Evening Standard at one point. Um, and somebody said to me, um, is it is it because of cocaine <laughs> basically like clearly you have a massive drug habit and that's wow. why you need to work so much and wow. I just thought that was hilarious um for me I never really saw it that way I never really saw that um I was working a lot and that there was a fear of the blank diary I saw it more as I'm taking control of what I want to do and this is what I want to do and during that time I had my three children and I actually had an awful lot of free time to myself and I organized my diary how I wanted to and I never really did any work that I didn't want to do um, and I had a really nice time <laughs> I think I don't know I'm able to I think I'm able sometimes when it, things are busy and there's a lot of work to not procrastinate and just get on with it mm. so I don't waste time in thinking oh maybe this won't work out or maybe this will be too difficult I just I just kind of get on and do it so yeah mm. I didn't yeah that I don't know was that driven by some sort of darker urge in some way possibly um but for me no because I had I you know I had a lot of time with my children the time I wanted to I also paid for childcare and and had the work that I wanted to do I traveled mm. quite a lot I spent a lot of time in Russia during that time I was also working for Russian Vogue during that 10 year period so yeah for me it's always about really control and am I able to turn things down that I don't want to do do I have the independence that I want am I doing the work I want to do and if I've got that then I'm happy mm. um the crisis really came for me when I think I get bored quite easily and I did begin to get a bit bored of doing that work because 
you know, I, so I see, I find it kind of, kind of fascinating, actually. Some people who I worked with in journalism in my early 20s, I worked on Cosmopolitan and Esquire magazine, then I went to The Express and then The Telegraph. Um, and I eventually took a redundancy from The Express when Richard Desmond bought it. But people I worked with in my early 20s, so this is now 25 years ago, they're still doing exactly the same thing. And I'm kind of fascinated by that and horrified and sort of envious because I just think, well, how nice to know what you want to do and just do it for 50 years. <laughs> but I could, I could never, ever do that. I have mm. to switch it up. So I was beginning to get a little bit antsy around my mid 30s and my children were getting older. And I was always saying to them as they went to school, you know, do what you want to do with your life. Don't let other people tell you what to do for all of that kind of self-help nonsense <laughs> and I realized it wasn't really true for me because I was ostensibly in charge of my own life and I couldn't blame anyone else because I didn't have a boss but I was getting a little bit a little bit sort of I don't know if bored is the right word but I, I wanted to do something different mm. and it was coinciding with this writing on the wall that I could see because I worked for so many different outlets I could see that Ah, it's not just one newspaper delaying payment, it's five. And yeah. it's not just one media group that's struggling and trying to get me to sign some weird contract <laughs> that actually doesn't only advantages them. Yeah. Um, it's all of them. And yeah. I was just thinking, wow, this whole thing is not going to exist in 10 years' time. Yeah. And seeing, it, seeing blogging come up and the rise of you know, being astonished that people would write great big long Facebook posts that they're not being paid for yeah. I'm just like that's a column that's worth about 500 pounds why are you putting that up for free <laughs> um, looking at all of that and just thinking okay there's a, a big change is coming and it coincided with this impetus that I had myself to make good on the dreams that I'd had from when I was much younger and realizing that a lot of the busyness and connection and contact that I craved in my journalism was actually something that I needed to express in a much more immediate way and I remember when I was doing my column um, in the Evening Standard which I got sacked from just after the um, financial crash as Veronica Wadley exited the Evening Standard as I was writing that column, I used to so much more enjoy writing the little tiny pithy bits that went with it that are like, you know, 80 yeah. or 90 words long. I could have written thousands of those. <laughs> and the main, the well. main column where I had to write sort of 900 words on some kind of passionate, uh, controversial topic, I was struggling more and more you know, it's hard to write that every week. And that's why mm. people write so much absolute nonsense in mm. those kind of columns, because you cannot possibly be passionate and aggressive about something 52 times a year mm. Mm. without saying some incredibly stupid and sometimes dangerous things. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was increasingly being encouraged to to be more um, aggressive and toothy in these columns. And I remember one editor saying to me, Viv, the trouble with you is that you're too benign. Mm. And now I look at people like Katie Hopkins mm. uh, and Rod Little yeah. and Julia Hartley Brewer. And I think yeah. mm, the trouble with them is not that they're too benign. No, and I realised that that was absolutely not who I was and that I was so much more comfortable writing these funny little payoffs. 
And then I started to do stand up and I was like, oh yeah, I like writing jokes. <laughs> I like writing jokes where it's a short burst and then there's a punchline and you're maybe trying to say something or you're trying to make a point or change people's minds about something, but you're doing it in a very subtle and a playful way and they can take it or leave it and hopefully it will entertain them. You're not trying to stand on a pedestal and stay, say, look at me, I'm going to say this incredibly outrageous thing. And you either stand for me or you stand against me. <laughs> and to me, that I saw that kind of nonsense direction that journalism was going in and thought, oh, that I can't do that. And that fueled me towards wanting to do stand-up all the more. See, that that is extremely wise and prescient, but nobody would look at stand-up and say, hey, I'm going to make lots of money in stand-up. I mean, as it happens, it morphed into something else that is presumably a fair bit more lucrative than journalism, the performance and uh, coaching and all that, and the podcast and the uh, the executive coaching and all of that. But at the time, did you think it would be, did you just think this is an interesting, exciting new direction or I just want to do it because I you you mentioned the the Margaret Heffernan advice which I love and she was the first guest on this podcast and I think she's an absolutely wonderful person you said that she said you know do what seems like fun did you do it because it seemed like fun or did you see a kind of could you foresee a a new business model morphing out of it oh my god no there was definitely no business model thinking going on there at all Mm. I mean everything that I'm telling you is very much with hindsight Mm. at the time it was a sort of a midlife crisis and a sort of a, I don't know, I guess it was a, everybody has a moment in even a career that they're enjoying and they're not massively miserable in when after 10 or 15 years, you want to switch it up. Yeah. And for me, that coincided with this. I did. I definitely did have a semi-conscious realisation that journalism was collapsing. Yeah. And well, it's not so much that it's collapsing because you could name a lot of people who is still making a lot of money and doing very well. And even, you know, lots of those are quite young and have come in in the last five years. So it's not totally closed off, I would say, as a career avenue, but you have to regard it in a completely different way. And Mm. I didn't want to pursue that kind of path. So it was partly fueled by you know, you need to get out of what you're doing. You need to do something new and exciting. You need to honor this promise of this idea that you have and this dream. And when I first started doing it, I didn't think that I would do any more than write about it as a journalist. Mm. I thought, you know, worst, that's the great thing about journalism is that whatever you do, like worst case scenario, it's a piece. Yes. <laughs> so I was just thinking, you know, I, I can, you know, I can write about this and, and we'll see what happens. But then as I did it, I realized, oh, no, I do really want to do this. <laughs> and I started to take it more and more seriously. And yeah, that became a huge part of my life for really about 10 years. I did Edinburgh for seven years, which is hugely financially disastrous undertaking I mean it's a it's such a stupid thing to do um everybody pretty much everybody with the exception of maybe half a dozen people everybody loses money on their Edinburgh show Mm. and there's 3,000 people undertaking that every year so Mm. (laughs) um yeah I did that and I did you know when I first did stand-up you get paid no money even for quite big gigs what big by those early standards like if we're in front of 200 people uh, and then you get your first payment and it's going to be 10 pounds I mean it's it's and you're so excited about that 10 pounds 
And so that's a very strange, um, a strange world. And I, I'm sort of still part of it. I don't know. It's not really existing at the moment, but I'm doing a thing at the Leicester Comedy Festival next month. But I, you know, I'm in and out a little bit of that world. But I realised after I started to have some success in that world after my fifth Edinburgh show, that the life of it, which is being on the road most of the time, is not for me, and it mm. takes me away from my family too much, mm. and it just isn't isn't right for me. And also, you lose a lot of control. And I I love being freelance. I love being independent. And to be very successful in that world, you need to be making money for other people. Mm. You need to have you know money towards agency management, all of those things, and. I didn't feel very comfortable around all of that. So that was when I started examining more, you know, why am I really doing this and what do I have to say? And I realized that one of the reasons I did it was to be able to connect with people and embrace that challenge of convincing people to listen to you. And that I'm fascinated by how that gets done. And I would really watch other people doing it and try and figure out like why do they listen to that person but they don't like that person as much it's often nothing to do with the material like often on very weak material people become very successful I mean god look at Donald Trump okay you examine his material there is nothing there it makes no sense and yet he's able to convince millions of people that he's a great leader and you should follow his cause and that's a huge thing in stand-up is you look at people's material and it doesn't the strength of it really has no bearing on how much you listen to someone and how much you like them. So Mm. I was completely fascinated by that. And I began to think about the impact that it has for how we regard women and whether we listen to women and always coming up against this question in stand-up of, you know, why why are there so few women on the bill and very few women headliners, very few women MCs? If When you start getting through to the pro gigs, if you're a woman, you're definitely open. So you'll be first on and you'll have 10 minutes. And even if you kill it, that's not going to be the best slot of the night. It can't be because it's the first. And it will make the night look bad if it was the best slot of the night. (laughs) So that was always really fascinating to me is this kind of status and hierarchy that we accord to different kinds of communications. And I just began to think, well, what do I want to pass on about that? What do I want to say? And that's how I came to write the book, How to Own the Room, which was originally in t- called She's Electric. That was my my working title was how do women convince us when we think they're electric? If you think about that moment last week at the inauguration when yeah. Amanda Gorman, the first poet laureate, laureate 23-year-old, she, everyone was like, oh, my God, wow, who is she? That's, this is incredible. I love her. That she's electric. You know, I wanted to explain to explain and examine why do you think that? What, why, where does that come from? What's she doing? You know, how can you get a piece of that for yourself and replicate it, um, but make it your own? Like, and why does it work in some people and not in others? And why do you think that when you see someone like Greta Thunberg, even though she speaks really, really slowly, she's really, really shy. Um, why does she have the same impact as someone like Amanda Gorman, who's really brash and confident and charismatic? Uh, that's fascinating to me. So I wanted to write a book that examined that. And then when the book came out, 
uh, I was starting to feel bad in a journalistic sense of, oh, Viv, you know, this book is just all about you and your opinions. Um, you need to bring some other women into this conversation, otherwise it doesn't count. <laughs> so that was where the impetus from the podcast came, was that mm. I then wanted to interview other people about what they thought about this. And I managed to sign up Nigella Lawson, Mary Portas and Mary Beard as the first three guests. Wow. <laughs> Uh, which because otherwise I was like you know this is this needs to be a conversation that really has impact and that people mm. notice mm. and that once I had those three I knew I was going to be okay mm. but for me in terms of work and how you plan things and this idea you're saying of a business plan <laughs> I am much more driven by exactly that Margaret Heffernan idea of is this going to be fun mm. And that does sound a little bit frivolous and a bit sort of trustafarian, maybe. Of, and I'm not very much not operating on a trustafarian model, that is for sure. But I like to think, you know, is this going to lose me money? And um, sometimes I have done things that have lost, lost me money, like doing Edinburgh shows. And then what's the trade off? And am I going to be able to underwrite that in some way? But mostly I'll just be thinking, can I break even on this? Does it have a chance of connecting in some way that could lead to something else interesting? And is it going to sustain me? Like, can I sustain my interest in it? Is it going to be fun? Because really the question of whether it's fun is the only thing that's going to sustain you in the long term. Yes, that, that's so interesting. And, it, and it's interesting as well, because as we know, the models for freelance portfolio life now are very different and so as you said uh, all those years ago when people were writing great long Facebook posts and you think hang on they're not being paid for that and I've certainly been one of those um, journalists who've massively resisted doing free work because it goes against everything we know and believe you know Samuel Johnson who said no man but a, a blockhead writes for anything except money and um <laughs> and I, I, I sort of believe that so but you've done but ultimately if you want to meet, make these new models work then a podcast obviously is yours is now sponsored I don't know how well it does financially and I, I you know don't need to know but you have in the kind of new world the aspiration is to have say a weekly newsletter as you do and yours is lovely and written regularly with great aplomb and the regular is kind of the key isn't it you do your podcast um an awful lot in the new model is unpaid and as we know if you're freelance a huge chunk of your work is unpaid anyway you spend I can spend all day every day answering emails and doing social media and doing admin and of course and answering people's requests for advice and help and none of that is paid at all. So it's kind of, it, it, you know, it's kind of been canny about all that, isn't it? And how would you say, have you, has it been trial and error for you? Or how would you say you have, and I realise at the moment, obviously, um, the big corporate uh, work is not there in the way it was before. But b before the pandemic hit, would you say you had a balance you were pretty happy with? Uh, yes, but it is very much trial and error and experience I would say because mm. I spent 10 years as a successful in inverted commas freelance journalist learning how to negotiate learning how to say no to a piece of work that I know is being paid at a rate that the man hours don't really justify you know I learned to be confident in doing that and I learned to let things go that I could regret 
Uh, I'm quite good at saying no. And then a year later, realizing, you know what, I should have said yes to that. But too bad. Mm. Um, I'm quite good at that. I mean, of course, you can't be brilliant at it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be human. So Mm. the experience of that um, has been invaluable. Then I learned a lot, really, through stand up about working for hardly any money on what you love Mm. and following a passion and allowing yourself to be guided by self-belief as many many artists and stand-ups and novelists do for years and years and years and I think as long as you recognize that you're doing something out of choice and that you choose to do this and this is how you choose to spend your time and you know what the payoff is in inverted commas yeah then you're okay and and last year, so you, you, you wrote Lift As You Climb, which is a really lovely book about women, ambition and how to help other women and to how to find a balance of that while earning a living as well. As well. Um, and, and you also had Aurore Tristesse, Lessons in Happiness from French Literature out last summer, which is a delightful book. I read it when I was driving through France on my way to Italy in order to avoid getting on a plane. And you oh, had uh, so glad you got away last year. Um, well, I was very lucky too. It was it, and it was it was absolutely lovely. And God knows when that was possible again. But anyway, and then you had these radio plays, and you were also doing TV, radio, journalism, and the podcast, and masses and masses of corporate coaching. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. But before the pandemic hit, how do you structure? Obviously, every day will be different. But do you have broad principles for how you structure your day? To, to manage all that because it's just a phenomenal output um <laughs> I don't know how to answer this question I can't remember <laughs> I can't um, I know I mean I used to do a lot of stuff you know pre-pandemic I traveled a lot the first three months of last year I was I was in like Italy France Switzerland Russia then I was in the US and then I was in Bermuda <laughs> Just, and before that, I'd been in New York and Washington and in, in Finland, and then I was in Moscow. The year before. Yeah, so was that corporate? Was that corporate stuff, or was that book? No, related? it was all book stuff. So my book, The Anna Karenina Fix, which is about Russian literature, that's oh. been a big bestseller in Russia. Oh. So I had a Russian tour with that uh, about a year before lockdown. And then that came out in Finland and has done really well there because they're Mm. completely obsessed with figuring out how the Russians tick because they are their neighbours. And so, yeah, there was I had loads of stuff going on um, and then a lot around how to own the room as well. So events um, off the back of that. I did a huge event, uh, 750 people in Bermuda Mm. just before uh, the pandemic. I'm so glad I got that under the wire. Mm. Yeah, so... I think one of the things that maybe is helpful for me is to not compartmentalize. So if I would be traveling, then I might also be writing at the same time. Or if I'm waiting, you know, in a green room or something, then I might also be doing my emails for half an hour Mm. and asking people to be on the podcast. Um, or if I've got another half an hour somewhere else, I might be writing a bit of script. Um, so most of the time I don't compartmentalize. And then other times I, I go and I work, I used to go say away for three or four days somewhere and work from really early in the morning till really late at night on one thing. 
So I either never compartmentalize and work in a very piecemeal kind of way, or I go all in on one particular project. And generally, if I'm, I've written four radio plays, and generally, if I'm writing a play, I will just sit and write every day until it's finished, and I won't look at email or social media or, or the internet or anything, and I'll just write. So I'm very good at taking a decision and then just following through with it. So if my decision is, oh, I'm going to do a million things at once, then I do a million things at once. And if my decision is, I'm just going to focus on this right now, then that's what I do. Mm. Mm. It's so interesting. In, in Au Revoir Tristesse, you talk about the French spirit of grabbing life by the throat and not caring what other people think. Certainly from the outside, it looks as though that's an attitude you have did, did you learn that from French literature or have you always had it this is making me laugh so I'm just thinking my general life attitude at the moment is like hide under my bed covers <laughs> well, I, think, I, think, I think we can say these are slightly <laughs> unusual yeah. although I do have moments of frenetic activity but they don't last for very long and they're not very fruitful at the moment um is that something I think that is definitely something that I learned from from books mm. um I was definitely a child who escaped into books and looked for the answers to things in books um my family background growing up was um how long have you got in this podcast to get into this? How, how can I say this in a, in a succinct way that won't be like a 20-year therapy session? Um, the two-minute version of the gross yeah, yeah, so my family is really, really lovely and I've had, you know, every advantage in the world. But um, there's a lot of very uh, complicated uh, dynamics <laughs> in my family and I very early on felt like, I needed to get out and I needed to have a life of my own and I needed to figure out what was going on outside of of my family and there's an, also a lot of stuff around my family background in terms of my surname which is obviously Jewish but a gross cop but it was never ever mentioned or accepted that this was a Jewish surname or that we had Eastern mm. European roots. And I didn't know about this until I was in my twenties. So that was kind of hanging around as a weird thing that I sort of knew, but didn't know as a child. Mm. So I was constantly looking for answers of like, what's really going on in this world <laughs> in books. And from the age of 11 at school, I was studying French. And then I went on to study German and Spanish uh, at school. And then in university, I studied Russian and, for me, that was always a big piece of the puzzle as well, of what are people talking about in other languages? What's going on in other parts of the world that we're not being told about? I think I had a strong sense of a child of there are things that I'm not being told. Mm. And that was definitely true. Mm. There are a lot of things I'm not being told and there are a lot of things that people don't want to talk about. And I figured I might find those things in books, seeing as the internet did not exist then. Mm. And so I absolutely devoured books and stories and anything I could get my hands on. And I definitely got the sense that has come across, I think, in, in Au Revoir Tristesse, the French book, which is about trying to figure out how to live your life according to the stories in these books. And it's also a theme in, in the Russian book, um, the Anna Karenina fix, of 
trying to find a blueprint for how to live a, a good and happy life. Because I don't know that all of us really get to pick that up in our childhood. If I'd had my way, I'd have ended up living in a little house on a prairie or a little house in the big woods. <laughs> <laughs> I think I probably would have been one of little women. I think that's one of the ideas <laughs> I had on our too, and Anna Green Gables, obviously, the whole yeah. lot. So, so have you, do you, are you working on a book at the moment? Um. No, yes and no. I don't have a book under contract at the moment. Um, and I'm a very sort of deadline driven person. Too, so I tend to only go hell for leather if I am, if I have a book under contract. And I've only ever written nonfiction apart from writing plays. Mm. Um, and generally in nonfiction, you sell a proposal and then you write the book rather than having yeah. any. I can't ever believe it. People still just seem to think that you write a book. I know, and you sell it. It's yeah. like, well, no, only novelists do that, and they yeah. are truly, truly great and noble. Um, so no, I don't have a book under contract, but I am working on a lot of different ideas and different things. Great, great, brilliant. Yeah, but I don't expect any of them to come to fruition. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I find this this whole period is so challenging. Um, it, is, it is. I mean, it, I noticed that one of the things you, you you started doing, and for me, this is even more daunting than a stand up comedy, is the wild swimming. In <laughs> the How the hell did you start doing that and why? And well, it's, yeah, it's telling that you mentioned that in relation to stand up, because for me, it's like you've got to put your adrenaline somewhere. Yeah. I have loads of adrenaline and I have a quest for. I love doing exciting things. I love doing new things. I love doing things that are a bit like, oh, no, really? <laughs> you know, I love doing that. And that's really important to me. And things that are quite unpredictable. You know, that's what I love about stand-up. It's just always really unpredictable. You never know quite what's going to happen. And it's a bit like that with outdoor swimming. Um, I, I sort of hate talking about it in a way because it's such a COVID cliche. Um, and I know that, you know, we all have like a hate toward hatred towards people who have bought a dry robe, um, a dry robe of these oh, big. Uh, I don't know. It certainly isn't a COVID cliche in my circles. I don't okay. know if anyone who would even dream oh, of thinking. Okay. Well, I think it is a bit of a COVID cliche to say that you've been uh, in inverted commas wild swimming, which just means swimming outdoors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've always loved swimming in the sea. And I went swimming in a lake a couple of years ago, which was absolutely freezing and it's always been in the back of my mind of I'd love to do more outdoor swimming I never thought I would swim in the Thames because the Thames is disgusting (laughs) but now I have been swimming in the Thames only for very short periods of time I think probably my maximum swim is about five minutes Um, but I absolutely love it I love it and on a more prosaic note I assume you've been doing well I'm pretty sure from your podcast that you've been doing carrying on doing corporate presence work and performance work and so on online how does it work it kind of how does it compare obviously it's not nearly as good but how's it going um yeah obviously anything that I do now which would have been a live event uh, or a presentation or a speech or anything like that is going to be online and I don't anticipate doing any face-to-face face live work for I would say at least end 
2021 I reckon it might be more like 2022 but let's not get into crystal ball here let's leave that to the government because they're so good at predicting so I had a moment really last year probably about six months into the pandemic where I just thought Viv just get real you're not going to get out there it's all going to be online it's all going to be on screen just embrace it and that's where I, I, the, I, you know, the idea of how to own the Zoom instead of how to own the room came from. And I just thought, OK, embrace it. Mm. Like you struggled with this, but you found a way through. So help other people who are struggling with it and help them find a way through. And I love having those conversations because they're very playful, actually. That's one of the things I enjoy the most is being able to prove on these screen interactions that it can be just as playful and just as spontaneous as a live interaction and that's something I love in stand-up is the sort of back and forth with an audience it's that kind of MC energy of having a conversation with somebody maybe pointing out something about the way that they're communicating or how they're sitting or what's behind them that that kind of keeps it live and I think a lot of zoom calls and on-screen communications are missing in that and they have this artificiality of hello now I will give my presentation this is my presentation and people have a tendency to do that in real life anyway but I think on screen it's amplified because they're even more nervous than they would be in real life or not true for everybody but true for a lot of people they're even more self-conscious than in real life uh, they're worried about things going wrong like you know the dog's going to come in the room or the wi-fi is going to cut or you know something terrible is going to happen or they're, they're going to mute themselves so there's a lot of anxiety around people's presence on screen uh, that exacerbates these already existing ticks that, that people have that are really unhelpful if you were to pick one realistic hope for what might emerge from this, what one, might that be? Mm, what, a, what a good question. <laughs> one realistic hope I have is, um, and I hope this doesn't sound too facile because I don't mean it to be facile at all. In fact, I think it's very deep. It's the idea of make, do and mend. I think that on a very small level, mm. uh, and I don't mean to say that, you know, when we come back, I think, many, many people will buy Chanel handbags and, and flash them um, at cocktail parties. <laughs> but <laughs> that will happen. You know, there will be hedonism, there will be mass mm. consumerism, there will be all kinds of displays of, of wealth and, and peacockery of all kinds, I think, will happen when and if we ever come out of this, which I don't know if we ever sort of fully will, actually. And I think if we do, then another pandemic will come fairly quickly. And you, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but I do think on some sort of smaller level, I think a lot of us have been forced to look around and think, Ah, oh, there's an awful lot of waste. There was an awful lot of waste of time, of money, of possessions, of of like owning too many clothes, buying too much stuff, wasting too much food. And we all knew that, and it was already a big part of the conversation. But I think that people have had a little bit more time to think about those things. So I think that will be a positive that mm. comes out of it. The thing I'm worried about. I'm worried that in, in the political sphere, it's going to become more and more difficult to speak the truth because the truth is going to be very negative. And those who do speak the truth and talk about the facts, which are quite frightening, they're already frightening now and they're only going to get more frightening, I mean, on an economic scale. 
And people who do talk about those facts and ask us to face them will be called uh, doom mongers. They will it they'll be it will be said of them that they're talking down this country, that they're not you know, it's already happening. Yeah. Well, I, I am, Viv. Every time I was on Sky on Saturday, every single time I go on Sky, I get uh, people saying, oh, you're so negative. And uh, and you just think 100,000 deaths, if that's not negative, um, it, it, it is incredibly depressing. And for myself, I just feel that the truth matters more than anything. But you're right that that is one of the huge challenges of our time. It's not apart from individually and trying to continue looking for seeking out and speaking the truth and trying to live with integrity which is all any of us can do um that's kind of I don't know it's hard to know what the answer is I think that's all we can do isn't it it is it's very challenging at the moment I watched a conversation between Laura Kunzberg and David Miliband um that was happening as part of the Holocaust Education Trust um, because it's coming up for a Holocaust Awareness uh, mm. Day and it was a very interesting conversation because David Miliband who is no longer active in politics and lives in the US was painting a picture of the tension between liberal democracy and the telling of the truth in inverted commas and what he called uh, autocratization. Mm which is clearly an academic co- uh, term that has been coined um, to avoid using the word fascism and um, to in- enable, you know, because if you talk about autocratization, then you can bring in uh, examples of dozens of countries which are, are not, obviously not fascist, but they have these autocratic yeah. elements. And, <laughs> yeah, and it was really like interesting because he painted this picture but when it came to the questions, they took it was on Zoom and they took questions from the audience. And one of the people said, yeah, that's really interesting. But what's your solution? And he didn't have one. And why should he? Because he's not in politics. Mm. So he doesn't have to have mm. one. But I really came away thinking, mm. well, who really mm. does have the answer to that? Because where is the positive argument for liberal democracy? Because liberal democracy can't just spend its time saying, you're a fascist, you're a fascist, you're a fascist. Because the fascists will just say, no, we're not. No, we're not. Mm. <laughs> and that's the position that we're in uh, at the moment is this. So, yeah, whoever can articulate that idea of, of truth and holding people to account, but without it sounding resentful and negative, that's the person who's going to hold the key. Yes, that's pinning quite a lot <laughs> one person but yes yeah yes well that's um ending on a nice trivial note along with chanel <laughs> handbags <laughs> future of liberal democracy thank you so much viv it's been really really lovely to talk to you thank you so much christina thank you so much for listening to this podcast if you liked it i'd be really grateful if you could share rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast it really does help other people find it Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QueenChristina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us, and I hope you'll join me again next week.